Rebecca Vardy has made it expressly clear that she does not accept large parts of Colleen Rooney's defense to her claim, nor does she accept large parts of the judgment which dismissed her claim. Everything we say should be seen in that light, and it's not necessarily accepted by Mrs. Vardy as being factually correct. Equally, the views, information, or opinions expressed during the Rooney Vardy, the Breakdown podcast series are given from the perspective of the individuals involved who represented Colleen Rooney during the legal proceedings that were brought against her by Rebecca Vardy. How we and Colleen Rooney perceived events is also unlikely to be accepted as accurate by Mrs. Vardy. In this episode, we're joined by Adam Crafton, sports writer at The Athletic. Adam's going to talk to us about the footballers that came up during the trial, the modern day dressing room, and of course, the evidence of Wayne Rooney. All right, Adam, thanks for joining us. Obviously, I know you're a sports writer with The Athletic, and I know that you were at the trial, but I'm not sure beyond that how many days you're at the trial, where your involvement started, how far back it went. Yeah, yeah, I think I did, I think four or five days of the trial. Um, So yeah, so I picked it up on, on the trial. We didn't cover it that much sort of in preceding that i think we did like a couple of explainers just about you know this is what's happening this is why it's happening um but i think it was very clear to us that there was a lot of football fans who were kind of secretly very very into it and wanting to know about you know what had actually gone on uh so our view was i think from each day of the trial we did sort of a short news story with the kind of headline of each day relevant to our audience. So it might have been in relation to, I don't know, something like the meetings that, um, so uh, I don't know if you remember, there was the, was it Euro 2016 where yeah. there was the um, alleged sort of organizing of the photos uh, by the paparazzi that Vardy was, was said to have been involved with um, and things like that. And then also the days where you had the stories about, for example, Danny Drinkwater finding their way into the media and the references to Riyad Mahrez and things like that. And then it sort of all came through to once uh, the trial had, had, had finished, we did sort of one big piece explaining sort of what had gone on, what had happened in the courtroom, as much detail as possible. Basically, we had the view that there would be a huge amount of football fans who had heard bits here, bits there, bits there, and just sort of wanted in one place everything that had happened. And that's that's what we gave them. Did you find it difficult, though, to, to try and actually weed out things that were relevant to your audience? Because ultimately, the, the case wasn't really about football at all, was it? But I can see how, you know, stuff like the dressing room and the lads are fuming and all that kind of stuff. But outside of that, you know, were you struggling to try and find a take on it? No, not really. Because, you know, the way we framed it as this is, I think it was a very sort of completely unimportant, but also actually quite important window into this kind of fusion of football, celebrity, mainstream media, social media, culture, all kind of mingling together in one place. You know, this this idea of how the how the dressing room works in terms of, you know, who knows information from a football dressing room? You know, how does that go in, you know, beyond the dressing room? Do people, do players talk about it at home and things like that? But then you also have this element of those who are associated with footballers and footballers themselves, how they want to build and maintain relationships with media. I thought that was fascinating, yeah. that angle of, you know, you know, what is the Rebecca Vardy's relationship with the Sun newspaper? What was Colleen Rooney's relationship with the Sun newspaper? 
How did that change over time? Why was Colleen Rooney, um, you know, instinctively suspicious of the Sun newspaper? And obviously, I think I think that probably went unsaid um, in court. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of that probably goes back to Hillsborough in terms of you know the the connection of people who grew up in Liverpool um, to, to the Sun newspaper's coverage of, of Hillsborough. And I found all of that that aspect of it fascinating. And then the way that you know someone in Rebecca Vardy's position looked to maintain her links and relationships with journalists and with the media. So yeah, the, the, we we sort of we pulled out some football details of it, but but we made very clear, you know, this is this is a story about modern celebrity culture and modern media culture, but then also fused together with this all blew up on social media as well. Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting um how almost like the origin of some of the stories or some of the parts of the case. So even the kind of perception of Colleen, you know, there was a kind of a narrative that Colleen was once, you know, Queen Wag or what have you, and then Rebecca Vardy was kind of aiming to get that title and maybe the origin of that story could be traced back kind of as far as Baden-Baden and the 2006 World Cup. And then... Well, well I, th- I, think it, I think it could even be traced back further. I mean, I don't think you, I'm sure maybe you guys have seen, there was a documentary that Wayne and Colleen Rooney did um, I think it was on Amazon yeah. um, a year or two ago now. And I think they talk in that about actually the way they were framed when they first emerged. At, he obviously emerged as a superstar footballer. She emerges as this childhood sweetheart. And actually the, the snobbery that greeted their arrival, right? Mm. The way that, you know, pictures of them were taken on like family holidays and that their families were mocked and all of this kind of thing. And, and look, I'm not saying at all here that, you know, that, that I think there have been times over the years where both Wayne and Colleen have have sought media coverage and, and benefited from media coverage. But I do think, you know, the way that Colleen Rooney was perceived goes back to when she first emerged. And this idea of her being framed, you know, a little bit, how can I put it, a bit like a chaff, basically, was the way I think she was perceived when she first emerged and then as this trial went on you actually really got a sense of someone who was really really smart right yeah. the, way, the way that she <laughs> absolutely the she, right the way she went about this the way she presented herself in court i don't think there was many people who came away from court whether it was you know journalists or even just members of the public who went away thinking god uh you know rebecca vardy's coming out of this really well and colleen rooney's had a bit of a nightmare i think the way that colleen presented herself in court, spoke in court, made her points. Um, I think she looked, I'm not just saying this because you guys represented her, but I think, you know, she looked very, very natural and very confident in herself um, and very assured in the points that she was making and and pretty sincere. So I think you'll get some people who have just seen bits of this and just think, oh, it's all just what a load of money, what a load of nonsense when there's so much other things going on in the world. I think people who actually paid attention and read some of it will think will, will actually think very, very positively of Colleen Rooney as a result. Yeah, to, to, it's interesting that because the contrast between Mrs. Vardy and Mrs. Rooney has, has had a lot of coverage in the media. I don't know to what extent it came across to you and the press generally as to some of the perceptions certainly that we read and heard about were that uh, Mrs. Vardy expected Colleen to operate or have operated in a similar way 
to how Mrs. Vardy chose to run her own affairs. And um, for me, at least, one of the learning curves was that, in fact, it struck me, and this is just my personal opinion, that they, in fact, do operate in a very, very different way. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, I've not fo- I, I wasn't sort of in journalism when Colleen sort of first started out, so I can't speak for, you know, what they were up to in, I don't know, 2003, 2004, 2006 kind of thing. Um, but I think she did say in court, didn't she, that she didn't, I think there was a period where she had some representation from um, the agency that Wayne Rooney's represented by, by from Paul Stretford. Um, but then actually, for the last few years, she's almost just had people that she speaks to for a bit of advice, but no real kind of representation um, officially. Yeah. officially. That- that, yeah, well, that's right. correct, and I think that's. Prob- I can't speak for early Colleen either. I, I've only known her through the case, so I only know Colleen as she is today. And I think the reality is, as she said in her evidence, is that she hasn't actually worked or mm. actually, um, you know, positively sought any press or media for the purposes of work and so forth as she might have done in a very early career. Because since she's had the children, she's just dedicated her time to being a full-time mum. Yeah, and I and I think you know I suppose you have to. You know, they're different people, right? They've had different lives. They've had different experiences. They've got very different husbands. Um, you know, with all due respect to, to Colleen, I mean, I'm sure she doesn't need to work another day in her life. You know, with obviously what what, what Wayne's achieved in, in in football, if she didn't if she didn't want to, and I'm sure that's pretty much the case with with the with the Vardis as well. But it's clear that Rebecca Vardy wanted to have. She didn't just. She clearly didn't just want to be Jamie Vardy's wife. You know, she wanted to be, or gave the impression of wanting to be, a celebrity. I think in her own right, um, and a public presence in her own right. Whether that's she was on what I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, and um, had columns in newspapers. I think at different times, and actually did. You know, I think absolutely valid points. There was some. Um, kind of charity sector work she did that that seemed really really positive as well um and it's probably one of the the sadder elements of this that i imagine that associations and organizations may now be more reluctant to work with her on some of those you know more positive causes but equally you know it's kind of the bed that's been made by the, the situation that developed well this is the point she was the claimant wasn't she this was a case she brought one of the points that you mentioned there as well is always interesting for me because it was a learning curve from my perspective. I had assumed, and I think probably now wrongly, that the press, if I can call them that, certainly the, the written media, for example, I'd assumed that they were more tight-knit uh, a community that, in fact, I think was the case. So, for example, you talked there about this was an interesting insight and window into how the relationship with the sun worked and certain players and so on and so forth i'd 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 assumed i think perhaps wrongly that you know those of you that do work within the press day and don't kind of knew these things but didn't necessarily talk about them you know the unwritten code and so forth but actually it's been a learning curve for me how many journalists have been surprised by the things that i was learning but i was expecting to learn them as it were well rather than i was expecting most of people who worked in your kind of role and profession to know a lot of these things but they were unspoken and not not written about yeah and i think well look, i mean i can only speak for myself in that respect i was at the i'm obviously at the athletic now i was at the daily mail um before that but i've always worked in the sport in sports sections so i've never i suppose i've never been on those kind of showbiz 
celebrity deaths where maybe uh maybe you know more stories are bought up and more stories work in slightly different ways you know obviously we know that you know, we as journalists rely on people breaking confidences and um providing information that other people wouldn't want out there and things like that so i'm never going to be sort of holier than thou about the idea of you know people giving journalists journalists information um equally i think people are absolutely entitled if they find out where that information is coming from to call people out if if you know if they find it and they think that that it's that it's unfair and being misrepresented um but but yeah definitely i think we learned things I think about how easy it can be to get stories into the media if people want to. Yeah, I think that was um, that was one of the main parts of Colleen's entire kind of sting, wasn't it? Really, in terms of shining a light on on that, you know, the way that stories do get into tabloid papers. Yeah, and I, and I, you, something again you mentioned there. I thought, I mean, it would be perhaps far too grandiose to say this was Colleen versus Fleet Street, as it were, but there was the Sun angle, which you know, Liverpool and the Sun and Colleen, and, you know, that was a factor and an angle to it. But also there was at one point, I kind of thought that at times it felt like it wasn't just Colleen fighting Rebecca, but Rebecca, Vardy and the Sun and perhaps the media even more broadly, because what Colleen was doing was undermining a valuable source of, of, of uh, column inches for the red tops and so forth and, and and illustrating a way in which people in Colleen's position can weed out and uh, um, undermine essentially that source of future uh, articles for the for the red tops so it's also the way the story was broke you know if that if this had happened you know 30 years ago or whatever presumably Colleen would have had to have gone to a paper and said this is what I think's happened will you run a story on it but she just went on a phone and chucked out a tweet and then, you know, 30 odd million views later, it's it's completely viral. Well, well, the, well you might have to check the, the figures on this to check it, you know, if I'm actually accurate. I'm going off instinct a bit, but what, one of the things that, you know, we know now in sports journalism, for example, is, you know, I could, I could write a story about Cristiano Ronaldo, something he's done at Manchester United training session today, for example, which may not be that positive. I'm just using this as a as a, as a hypothetical and we could put that out on our platform where we have you know over a million um subscribers and all different social media followings and things like that <laughs> that is dwarfed by the audience of a celebrity on a social media platform now their audience is bigger than any publication than any um you know than any journalist and if they just took and if you know i could put out a truthful story and Ronaldo could come out and say that's total rubbish, and all of a sudden you've got however many hundreds of millions he's got on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, thinking that's rubbish, right? So the power of the celebrity, the the footballer, the the the, the media star now is it's just completely different to the pre-social media age, and that can be for better and worse. So it could be for someone to cover up a truthful story, it can also be incredibly empowering. And I think it's something that Colleen Rooney's shown. I think it's something that, you know, you could take the example of Marcus Rashford when he was talking about free school, free school meals a couple of years ago. Would he have been able to do that in the pre-social media age where everything you do has to go through 
a media organization and maybe that that message doesn't go through in exactly the way that you want it to go through and and look yeah there are times now where you know i'm making a pitch to players agents or or celebrities agents saying you know can we do this piece together and things like that and there'll be times they just turn around to me and say well actually we've got a bigger platform we get more control over the message why do we need to bother with you guys and i think there's you know there's still times where good media relations are obviously beneficial but that is absolutely something that's changed over the past 10 years for for better and worse yeah and i think actually one of the consequences of this whole um uh, dispute between mrs vardy and mrs rooney is that i'm not sure what the stats are and i haven't been to check them but i think mrs vardy's followers and so forth have significantly increased from where they were beforehand so you know that's just a consequence of of living life in a, in the full glare isn't it now yeah well, i think even during the trial there was i mean it was it was a big aspect of it i don't know how much you guys as as uh, solicitors were looking at this and tracking i suppose online sentiment as as you're as you're going along but like you know the hashtag wagatha hashtag team colleen hashtag team vardy i mean as, as a journalist it was actually something at the end of each day i would just look at and see what are people saying in response to what they're hearing in court that day because it did seem like you were almost covering like these online fan bases right in a, <laughs> to, yeah to, we were we were very aware of it as it happened and and mm-hmm. we were monitoring it and um, probably more more than more than uh, we ought to say in certain respects but it was you know can't deny it was a feature of the strategy we felt that we would and had the right to be strong on PR and to be strong on the messaging and that was one of the key tasks to try and turn that around because when we first came involved I think the messaging wasn't great from Colleen's perspective people you know only look at now recent history and then now look back with hindsight knowing what the judgment says and that colors how they view things but when we picked it up in May 2020 the coverage certainly wasn't like that and you talk about team Vardy team Rooney I think it was a pretty even split thereabouts or you know it wasn't certainly wasn't as it was at the trial anyway at that point were you worried when sorry to turn it on you and ask a question but when you had that those those couple of days obviously where Vardy is being questioned and there were moments where there were moments where it was hilarious where you have, you know, obviously the Davy Jones locker line and and things like that, and and different moments where you're just like, this is utterly surreal. But then there was actually some moments which were quite uncomfortable to be in the courtroom, you know, when absolutely. she's breaking down yeah. in tears and yeah. where she's talking about, you know, feeling like, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think she spoke about sort of suicidal thoughts at, at one point as well, mm. where you know, just being in the room at that point, you're like, this is actually going from being very funny and entertaining to actually just deeply uncomfortable. But then you come back to that sense of well, she, Mrs. Vardy is the person that brought the place, right? You're right. And that's where I would start in answering because, you know, we, we didn't create the situation. The situation is what it is and we were doing a job. But yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, and the online abuse that, that Mrs. Vardy has received is absolutely outrageous, unacceptable. And, you know, that's not something that we can change. It's not something that, that anybody condones. And, you know, in terms of probing her evidence in cross-examination, whoever you are in whatever trial you're at, whoever you are, it, cross-examination is never a comfortable experience, no matter who you are. And it's not 
often easy to watch, no matter who it is. Now, when the subject matter is particularly personal, as it was, that's all the more so. And yeah, absolutely. You know, we're human beings like everybody else. We were sat in the courtroom and yes, I've got a job to do, but we don't enjoy, uh, you know, seeing somebody struggle uh, in the witness box. And the last hour or two of Mrs. Vardy's evidence was a tough watch. And, you know, I can't deny, I, you know, I felt for her. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we say that, you know, obviously Rebecca Vardy brought the case and Colleen was defendant, but I think because our defence was true and we had the burden of proof, so we were having to establish the truth of what Colleen had posted. So I think ordinarily a claimant in litigation would expect the cross-examination of the defendant to be the main centrepiece of, of, of any trial, as in they're the one that's going to be under the microscope and under but pressure. It didn't feel like that in the room, did it? It felt... As well, the, 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 this is it. So the, this is, you know, because it was our burden of proof and, you know, we were the one that was having to make the case. It, it, and, you know, the, the subject matter of this claim was, you know, vindication. You know, Rebecca Vardy was seeking vindication to her reputation. So that is the subject matter of, of the case, as it were. And so it was, you know, it, I, it did feel very much like it was Rebecca Vardy that was on trial rather than rather than Colleen. But also we can't get away from the fact it was a credibility trial. This, this, you know, I've given the example elsewhere when other people have asked me about cases and proof and evidence. And if you are arguing over the legal interpretation of a clause in a contract, the evidence is not that relevant. It's lawyers talking about the Oxford English Dictionary and so forth and interpretation. Evidence doesn't really come into it. Here, this case, though, was all about credibility in many respects because, you know, there was no smoking gun that, that laid it to rest immediately. So inevitably, witnesses are going to come under close examination about how credible they are in various respects across the breadth of all of their evidence. And that was inescapable. But, you know, everybody knew that going into trial. Everybody knew that at the start of the case, including Mrs. Vardy. Yeah. And there were also moments, you know, where, as, I, as I say, where you, where you feel empathetic. I think there were also moments where you know, I was actually shocked and, and, and quite appalled. Like, I mean, the, the moments where you hear, for example, um, the, that there was a WhatsApp exchange between uh, Rebecca Vardy and her agent, Caroline Watt, where it, it looked at that point like they were trying to... It was the point where, where Rebecca was trying to kind of maybe act more friendly with Colleen after a few after she'd made the sort of first few allegations. And then she says to her agent, like, you know, shall I say something about Rosie, who was Colleen's sister? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. That, that, that way. Th those were the things where you, those are the moments where you're like, A, that's really bad. B, how on earth has she brought this? <laughs> but that's that's yeah. a great, uh, in, in, you know, look, first of all, that was incredibly difficult, even to take instructions from a client about those things is a difficult thing to ask, but it, but th that in itself is an illustration of how yes, this was a spat about nothing. But equally, it matters. You know, these things matter to people's lives. This is a great illustration of how actually you can say it's about nothing. But but when very very personal things are at stake, it matters to that person. And and this is why, you know, on on that very human level, that was a good good illustration of why it did matter. Yeah, I mean, I, it was things because you spoke before about whether we were kind of looking at the press throughout the trial. And 
you know, it, it, it wasn't always the, the story that I thought would be out there in the press when I looked at it each day. Like, you know, that, that Rosie comment, for instance, I know it got picked up, but it didn't, I didn't think it was the main story of that day or of Vardy's cross-examination or what have you. But I, I remember thinking, God, it, it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be fireworks or whatever if that gets out, you know, it's going to be dramatic kind of thing. But I don't know if it was just because maybe each put there was there was so much going out yeah I, th I think that's what it was and it may have also been unfortunately i think the way the media works is you know if someone cries in the witness box that then becomes like the lead item that day you know people break breaking you know inverted commas breaking down in the witness box in tears um so i think it was just because so much was ha was happening in you know the space of seven or eight hours each day that that maybe the things that you expect or hope would be at the top of the the agenda don't always get there. Yeah, and I think had you know had a TV producer been in charge of the trial, they'd have made it a three month long trial because there was that much content to spread out. But you're right, yeah. what in fact happened is you'd have your kind of uh, your greatest hits had come out all in one day, and then you'd have to pick which one you're going to play, wouldn't you? Absolutely. But you're right to say you know the case did kind of you know during the trial, particularly Rebecca Vardy's cross examination, there were kind of roller coaster moments of you know, you know, veering from ridiculous to quite dark and eerie kind of thing. Were you surprised by, and in your coverage, you mentioned two ladies in their 60s who'd kind of come along to the trial for, to, to have a look for the day. Were you kind of surprised by the different corners of the press or just the public that were kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say gripped by it, but at least interested to some extent in the case? I thought actually more members of the public would come. I think it was as though the members of the public thought, oh, we can't come because it's court. And I'm not sure how many members of the public are actually aware you can just go in and <laughs> go in and watch. Um, but the only reason I got talking to those women, because there was, an, the I think on one of the days, there was like an overflow for journalists because there were so many um, representatives of, of the media there. And there were these two ladies who come from outside of London they basically said, you know, we were going to have a day shopping. We thought we'd just come and watch this instead because we can't stop reading about it. They start like, about an hour in. They're like, oh, we should have brought some sweets and some popcorn. And we're like, <laughs> and yeah, it, that's, it, that's the other thing the public don't know that the cafe in the court is crap. <laughs> well, the cafe in the court is crap. You're also not allowed to drink anything, are you? In 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 the courtroom. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got I was told off for having a sip of tea um, at one point. Um, so they wouldn't have got away with the sweets, I don't think, in any case. But no, no, th there was definitely this this big fascination. It was funny because I, I we obviously did a, a big piece on it at the end, but I sort of tweeted throughout it, and then the, the BBC sent their, I think they sent their entertainment reporter, yeah, Colin, Colin Patterson. Colin Patterson was there, right, to, to to cover the case, which in itself is quite you know significant for the BBC to dedicate those resources. The BBC did a kind of don't know if it's still going. It's like a twenty-part podcast series um, on the whole thing, and I went on on one episode of that, and it was the most messages I've ever received, having written or been on anything from <laughs> lots of like uh, uh, female friends that have been that I was at uni with, from friends of my mum that had, that had been listening to it, and you had these people being like, "Oh, I don't really want people to know, but I was really listening to every episode of that, or reading every single page of this." So. There was this, you know, clearly, it wouldn't have been front page of the papers every single day, 
if the data online wasn't backing up that people wanted to read about it. I think there was also this this football plot line that develops in terms of you know, Wayne kind of dutifully turning out every day. It was almost as though Colleen had, had said to him in that like very kind of almost like middle-aged husband-wife way, like you are going to this and you will be there every day in your suit and you will turn up and you will be with there with me. And I think Vard, Jamie Vardy came on the last day. And then what, what was strange with that was obviously Wayne had given evidence um, in the witness box and then Jamie Vardy didn't. But then as he was leaving court, basically just said, Wayne's spoken a load of rubbish there. Um, now, for, you know, for me as a journalist, being being there, you're a bit like, well, if you want to say something, Jamie, then you probably have to go in the box, right? <laughs> at that point and speak in court if if i presume he would have had the opportunity to do so if he wished to he would uh, and he would have been subject to cross-examination exactly right. the, ju the judge may have had the similar thought as you about that i don't know we'll never find out yeah and that's what struck me it was you know you've got wayne going in the witness box okay he wasn't perfect but he basically said what he needed to say um and <laughs> jamie vardy in a kind of very jamie vardy way just coming out of court saying load of rubbish <laughs> and yeah. that that was the kind of surreal element of it um and it it, it did strike you know, that bit was quite sad in the way that you know clearly they were england teammates um at one point i presume they would have got on quite well at, at one point and i imagine there must have been a bit where when this all first happened where wayne and jamie are sort of I don't know, exchanging text messages with one another saying, I can't believe what those two are up to. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that's right. I mean, we did you see Wayne's evidence? I assume you were there for Wayne. Yes. You must have been there yeah. for the main event. So well, I mean, He'd spoken to Jamie Hunty during Euro 2016. Yeah. And that well, that was his evidence, but 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 about the case and you know them exchanging messages or whatever. You know Wayne's evidence was that he was learning all of this for the first time in, in the courtroom. You know we saw that first handy. Yeah, he was. He was you know fascinated by it in many ways because they hadn't. You know him and Colleen. Never mind him and Jamie. Him and Colleen hadn't really discussed it in the level of detail. There. No, and and you know you picked up there on um, you know one of the WhatsApps that Rebecca Vardy had sent to her agent, but you know that was kind of you know Wayne was kind of learning that sort of stuff at the same time as the journalist in in the courtroom that you know that hadn't been following it that closely previously so it he definitely you know he wasn't um you know intimately involved I didn't really get the impression that Jamie Vardy was either based on exactly I mean I never I never got the impression that either of them were actually um rolling their sleeves and getting involved that was just my impression of it all so in terms of, of your um, follow-up, as it were, is this now story been and gone or is there anything left of interest in it? I don't think so. Um, you know, it's been clearly, you know, the judgment's been made. Uh, she's not, has she appealed? She said she might appeal, didn't she? Yeah, they've not appealed. They've not they're appealed. Not, yeah, they're out of, out of time now to appeal. So no, I would think, you know, moving forward, maybe if, I don't know, for example, Jamie Vardy goes to play in the States, and he happens to be playing against a team managed by Wayne Rooney, which you know isn't impossible. Then that becomes an interesting, an interesting story again. Um, the only other aspect to it is where it is interesting. I suppose it's the way that those relationships between, you know, what we call wives and girlfriends of footballers, is changing. I think with the media. I mean, there aren't many of 
the current England team, whose wives and girlfriends I think most members of the general public would actually know. That that came out, didn't it, when the bit you talked about, I think it was at World Cup 2018 with what we said was the kind of staged paparazzi shot. Um, you know, I, I remember looking at that as part of the case and I, I didn't know who who they were, to be honest. Um, whereas the... so I think that's really changed if you go back to kind of, particularly when Colleen was first coming on the scene, you had Cheryl Cole and uh, or Cheryl Cole at the time, um, and, and Colleen and Victoria Beckham. I, I think that that has changed. And I think a lot of that is down to the way that the, the Football Association has managed those relationships, I think, with the media. Um, I think it's also the players themselves, you know, wanting a bit more respect. And I think it's also what I was saying earlier about social media, that there's probably just things that we that media can't really get away with as much anymore. Because there is that power of, you know, if a player was to go on social media and say, you know, these paparazzi have been following my my other half for the last few weeks down the beach, then the media's in real trouble, right? And, and obviously, you know, they can go down illegal routes of privacy as well, which I know has obviously got stronger um, a, a, as well. But I think that's that's significant. And Rebecca Vardy may have been almost like the last of those who who will have that real public presence, certainly out of the current squad, I think. I don't think there's anyone I'm forgetting there. The current squad. No, that's true. I mean, I, you know, I, I spoke to a lot of what are termed wags mm-hmm. as part of this throughout the case, and uh, the wish to remain anonymous, actually, and the fear of being put in the spotlight and, and being put in the firing line in some cases was definitely a factor, and a factor yeah. in who did and didn't come forward and who would and wouldn't be willing to go on the record about certain things. That was relevant. Adam, thanks yeah. for your time. If um, if Wayne decides to sign Jamie Vardy to go and play for him in DC, we will let you know first. <laughs> Thank You'll you. Get very a scoop much. on it. Thank you very much. Okay, so in the next episode, we're going to be joined by Hadley Freeman from the Guardian, who was one of the journalists who was present throughout the entirety of the seven-day trial, and who took a very keen interest in the case. And I know that Hadley has her own perspective on how things went and what particularly piqued her interest so um, we'll be speaking to Hadley about her perspective and she'll be talking to us about her perspective to go through the facts that she focused on during the trial and, and how we saw them. Thanks everyone for listening if you've got any questions or any queries or want to reach out to us use the information that's in the podcast description.